0: modern 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 Modern. we're prepping for a voyage modern the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why don't you make that a double modern bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 162 of the modern bar cart podcast I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, we're heading south of the border with philanthropist, bar owner, and author Ivy Mix. She's the co-founder of Speed Rack, which is an incredible series of charitable bartending competitions that feature amazing women behind the bar and raise money for breast cancer research, and she also owns and runs Leanda, a cocktail bar in Brooklyn featuring Latin spirits and flavors. And as if that wasn't already enough to keep her busy, Ivy's new book, Spirits of Latin America, is one of the most exciting new books to hit the shelves this year. She's here to tell us exactly why we should be so excited about the agave, cane, and grape distillates that dominate Central and South American cocktail culture. But first, let's take a moment and give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Pancho Petico, designed by Landa bartender Shannon Ponch and featured in the cane section of Ivy's book. To make it, you'll need one and a quarter ounces of agricole rum, which is a style made from cane juice rather than molasses. Three quarters of an ounce of bourbon. One half ounce of manzanilla sherry. Ivy recommends a brand called Laguita, which I can confirm is indeed delicious. One and a quarter ounces of poblano pepper syrup, which I'll cover here in a moment. 1 half ounce of pineapple juice and 3 quarters of an ounce of lime juice. Combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give it a good hearty shake, then strain into a Collins glass over crushed or pebble ice, garnish with a lime wheel, and enjoy. To make that poblano pepper syrup. Ivy recommends de-stemming eight poblano peppers, but leaving in the seeds for a bit of extra spice. Then juicing those until you have about two cups of pepper juice. Mm, pepper juice, an ingredient that I don't often see behind the bar. Add that to a blender with one cup of agave syrup. Blend until integrated, then bottle and refrigerate. What I love about the Pancho petico cocktail is its expert balance of multiple sweeteners and acids. You've got sweet notes from the rum, bourbon, and poblano syrup, acid from the manzanilla sherry and the lime juice, and then the half ounce of pineapple juice that straddles the line between sweet. Personally, I'm a green drink guy, especially when it's summertime. So if you're looking for a gorgeous highball that'll blow your guests away this Labor Day weekend, I'd recommend grabbing the ingredients for the Pancho petico. It's not the simplest drink, but in the words of everyone's favorite amphibian role model, it's not easy being green. So, now that you're fueled up for this trip to Mexico, Brazil, and beyond, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this flavorful conversation with Ivy Mix, author of Spirits of Latin America, some of the topics we discuss include Ivy's background in the bar world, including her philanthropic work as co-founder of Speed Rack, how Spirits of Latin America is tied intimately to Leyenda, a Pan-Latin bar that Ivy designed in partnership with Julie Reiner of Clover Club. Why this book is as much a travelogue as it is a cocktail book. Yes, there are recipes, and yes, there's information on different spirits, but the soul of the book is also rooted in people and place. We dig into all this at great length. An interesting perspective shift in the form of a case study on the Havana, Cuba bartending scene, where bartenders tend to have more advanced degrees than their clients. We also dig really deep into Ivy's cocktail workshopping practices at Landa, which generated a number of cocktails in her book. It's almost impossible to summarize, except to say that she incorporates spreadsheets, improv, mad libs, and formal art crits. It sounds insane, but it's completely interesting and exceptionally compelling. To cap it all off, we talk about bar hacks for getting esoteric booze in the quarantine era, The romance of split-based cocktails, the problem with everyone wanting to be a National Geographic photographer, what to drink with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and much, much more. This conversation, if anything, reveals why so many people in the hospitality world look up to Ivy Mix as a person who brings quality to the table In every possible way. Yes, we need to ignore the fact that in my imaginary bartender wrestling league, she has the perfect name for a cage match contender. And yes, we also need to find some way to sublimate our insane jealousy of her travels throughout the agave, cane, and grape regions of Latin America. But if you pick up her book, you just might find the solution in one of her many innovative and painstakingly polished cocktails. Please enjoy this illuminating and expertly balanced interview with philanthropist, bar owner, and author, Ivy Mix. Ivy, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So... Before we jump into all of the various spirits of Latin America, the varieties of Latin American spiritual experience, we might say, um, why don't you just introduce yourself for our listeners and uh, give us some of the things that you did maybe before you came out with this book?
1: <laughs> sure. So um, I, my name is Ivy Nix. I am a bartender and bar owner. Um, I own and operate a bar called Leyenda in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and I also started about 10 years ago an all-female bartending competition called Speed Rack, um, which kind of is two pillars. We simultaneously raise a platform for women in this predominantly male-dominated industry. And we also raise money for breast cancer research and prevention. So in the 10 years, almost 10 years we've been doing this, we've raised just over a million dollars, which is great. We are on, you know, we're not doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, because of, <laughs> of the times that we're in, you can't really get upwards of a you know thousand bartenders screaming in a room together. But yeah, that's pretty much it. Leyenda, Speed Rack. I've been in the industry for uh, about too long to say sixteen years. I've been bartending, which is a long time, uh, and I've been in the kind of the cocktail scene since about two thousand nine.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah. I think last time you were on the speakeasy, you were right about to crack that million dollar mark. So congrats on finally eclipsing that. Thank you. And before we move on to to talk about the book, I really do want to emphasize for our listeners, uh, about half of whom are, um, you know, home bartenders as opposed to industry folks. I really want to emphasize the impact that Speed Rack has had on the industry because not only is it a huge event that, that has, you know evolved to take place in multiple cities across multiple countries. Um, Not only has it raised a million dollars, but I mean, it's it's sort of the... It's the one event that my bartender friends get most excited about <laughs> during the entire year. You know, they have their cocktail competitions where they're all kind of going up against one another. But the Speed Rack competition is, I think, the one that people are most excited about. Not just the people who are attending and, and uh, or not, not just, I should say, the people who are competing, but the people who are just out there to support and, and raise money. It's the time that I sense in my bartender friends the most excitement. So for what it's worth, uh, it's, it's a huge deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh we call it bartender Christmas. <laughs> like every day people are like, Happy speed rack Day and like everyone's kind of like, you know, getting together. It's, it's really fun. It gives people a reason, especially if the volunteers, um, just to get together and work for, you know, it's like, hey, we could raise twenty five thousand dollars today. Let's get into it. You know. So yeah. it's really fun.
0: Yeah, I like that. A temporally and geographically floating bartender Christmas. Uh um, exactly. that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> this is exciting. You have a new book out, uh, spirits of Latin America. And, uh, I'd, I'd love for you to just kind of give us the, the big picture story. Like how did you decide that this was the book you want to write? Uh, did the book choose you? And then we can kind of dig into, uh, things like the way it was structured, the places that you traveled to be able to, you know, visit these places and meet the people who are making these spirits. And then, of course, also the beautiful and delicious cocktails that are featured in the book. So just give us some of those big picture overview uh, items first, and then I guess we'll get into the details.
1: Sure. So, I mean, it all kind of started, you know, I'm kind of like a project oriented person. I feel like every... You know three to four years i'm like okay i got that now let's do something else you know it's like add something else to the to the pile so you know like five years four or five years after starting speed rack i started i opened leyenda um and then about three year, two or three years after opening leyenda um i was like well now what do i open another bar you know like, like what's the plan um and i was approached about writing a book by a wonderful woman named emily timberlake uh, Who used to run Ten Speed Press, and she was like, "What do you? What would you like to write about?" And my, you know, my response was like, "Well, I can tell you what I don't really want to write about, and I don't really want to write about what it's like to be a woman in the industry." Um, at that point, I was frequently kind of like the de facto voice of women for a long time, and I found that to be like more annoying because kind of you know, the whole point of speed is to have like, here's all these women, look at them all. There's so many, <laughs> you know, and I was <laughs> like, why, why me? Um, and, you know, but also I built my career off that, which was great, but I was kind of like, okay, I have other interests that are, you know, ancillary to being a feminist, you know? So Leyenda, um, the book really goes back to when we opened Leyenda. So we opened Leyenda in 2015 And we opened it in like six months, almost no time. And I partnered with Julie Reiner, who was my boss for many years and mentor. And she asked me, hey, do you want to open up this bar? It's the same landlord as Clover Club, which is directly across the street where I worked for four years. And she was like, I just want to open up something that's not, you know, not Clover Club, something different. How about we open up Tequila and bar? And I was like, no, I don't really want to open up a tequila and mezcal bar. I've been to so many tequila and mezcal bars, uh, and most of them suck. And most of them are like cultural appropriation rather than cultural celebration. Um, and it's like, you know, like Cinco de Mayo, chimichanga, sombrero, you know, burrito. It's just like, not really, uh, it's not genuine half the time. And I spent a lot of my life um, traveling throughout. Latin America, so not just Mexico, but like Central South America, parts of the Caribbean. Um, and even like working at Clover Club, for instance, like whenever we did a new menu and it was time to submit a drink, I very rarely was the whiskey drink submission. You know, I was like the pisco and the cachaça, you know? So I've always been drawn to those flavors in that, that part of the world. And yeah, so when Julie was like, let's open a bar, I was like, okay, how about we open up Pan-Latin-inspired bar? So not using kind of the, the popularity of agave spirits as a gateway, but then being able to introduce people to these really complex and, and awesome spirits. So when I came to writing the book, I was like, I want to do the same thing. I want to give people knowledge um, that I actually can't find. So the thing that I found that... And the reason why I'm really proud about the book is that I there's no book like it. <laughs> like I couldn't just pick up another book and be like, oh, I'll just read that one and educate myself on this. I had to like steal my cousin, she's a professor, and she gave me her JSTOR login. Remember JSTOR from college? Mm-hmm. So I would like read all these academic anthropological essays about, you know, agriculture in the new world, I say with air quotes, you know. And so that's how, we pick, that's how I picked the subject of the book. Like, okay, I can't find this book. <laughs> I want to write this book. Um, and I want to really discuss what makes, I think, these categories of spirits a category beyond what their base material is, but based on their geographical location.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating book in in terms of the organizational structure because it is both loose and tight in a number of ways. I mean, it's loose in that if you look at the table of contents, you're like, mm, "Okay, there's three things here: yeah. <laughs> <You're not> agave, <laughs> cane, yeah. and you know, and then grapes." You know, it's like, "Hmm, okay." That doesn't yeah. tell me a whole lot about what I'm going to be experiencing, but I, I like that this sort of loose structure is also quasi geographical right you kind of agave is kind of in this region cane is kind of in this clump over here and then grapes are kind of in a slightly different clump so you have a a sort of geographical natural uh, organization there and then you know obviously there's the travelogue aspect You, you did a lot of traveling to be able to put this together and In one respect, I imagine being a bartender, uh, being a high-profile bartender in a high-profile cocktail city and having access to these brands and these reps was probably useful in that. But that only gets you one step of the way. So Mm -hmm. can you you talk a little bit about the process of research that that happened, I guess, on the ground as opposed to in JSTOR?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So writing a book – I know you've talked to different authors on this podcast. is really hard, and you know there were definitely parts where they were like, "Listen, you're being too esoteric, and this is too like just you gotta not be." So I, I went to university as a philosophy major in, in university, so it's like they're like, "You got to tone that shit down <laughs> and, <laughs> and make it a little bit more approachable." And I was like, "Okay," but so the way we did it first was we did a lot of research going in, like doing the JSTOR stuff, and then. Um, it's like, all right, we need to go do feet on the ground, um, research here. And there were certain categories that I knew better that I've been more infiltrated in for more of my life. Like, you know, I got, I get the whole reason why I'm in this industry at all is because of, um, agave distillates and mezcal in particular. Um, so those connections I already had, right. It's like, okay, write someone. If I don't know this person who I want to see personally, I know someone who does, I can go and travel around, you know, different parts of Mexico. And I've probably already been to lots of these places and then just like research and develop and blah, blah. And then there are other places where I'm like, I don't really have any connections down there. I mean, some, because yeah, I know, like you said, like, I know some brands, but in lots of different parts of this part of the world, the brands that we have in Amer- in the United States of America are not the same brands. They're purely for export, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to like, use your different connections and just making sure that I was talking to people who really wanted to educate about the category and not just their brand, right? So for instance, like last night, I just did a, an event with uh, Novo Fogo Cachaca. I partnered with Navy Strength. We did a little like book launch thing virtually, of course. But I went down to Brazil for like six, I don't even know like seven days a week or 10 days something like this um and I spent a lot most of my time with Nova Fogo and then a little bit of my time with these guys who make Yaguara Cachaca um and I went to go see a bunch of other producers and that was a really fun thing right it was just like okay like there's us here's this guy and he's not even like on the map of making Cachaca because you can read in the book but like there's a lot of underground cachaca production that has, has lots to do with taxes and what have you. Um, and then while I was there, I would meet their friend. Oh, you got to meet my friend who does those things. So it kind of it, you know exponentially grew from there. And it was really fascinating and interesting, you know, but I really relied heavily on the people that I knew, you know, um, everywhere I went, I was like, I had, I could, I could like contact someone and be like, Hey, it's Ivy. You know, I know Diego, Diego isn't here cause he couldn't come, but like we're supposed to be in contact. So we'd like meet at a coffee shop and then that would be like my guide, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you know, the nice thing is, is that p- people were excited to have this book be written because there have been quite a b- amount of books on rum and a few books on tequila, but you know, there haven't been like especially people like who have kashasa or pisco or singani or like some of these other distillates. They're like, oh, my God, this is good. You know, like I want to share this knowledge of what um, what this category of spirits are.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, having to kind of tone down some of the, what some people maybe in the publishing landscape would consider to be esoteric nuances. Right. Uh, <laughs> but you don't, don't feel bad because a couple weeks ago I talked about virtue ethics versus utilitarianism in agave farming with Lubank bank and, right. and Chava from agave road trip. So we like all that stuff here. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's, um, um, you know one of the things that i like about the book is that kind of interspersed at, at kind of smart locations in the book relative to the rest of the narrative that you're telling about the cane the agave or the grape you have these little kind of call out pages where it's like a page or most of a page where mm-hmm. you take a single topic and and a, a book that actually came to mind when I, when I saw that move was, uh, Southern Teague's I'm just here for the drinks where he'll kind of Mm -hmm. do a similar thing where he'll call out one topic and it's great because it, it kind of breaks up the read a little bit, you know, it Mm -hmm. gives you a little bit of, of contrast with the rest of, of what's going on. Um, what are some examples of like those little call out things that maybe you learned while you were down there or like the, just like little, little ways to think about things that you might, that might pique our listeners interest. I don't know if that's a clear question.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, the first one that comes to my mind uh, is the one that's called Soy Cantinero about the Havana-Cuba Bartenders Association. Um, I had never been to Cuba when I went for the book. Um, I, I, as you can imagine, Cuba is a uh, very interesting country given its, given its history and its communist culture. Um, it's It was... Totally different than I anticipated it to be. Um, like, it's one of those things, that, like, I think that, especially as Americans, we, like, romanticize so heavily Cuba because, it's like, you can't go there or couldn't go there until recently. And there's a few streets that are really beautiful in Cuba, and a lot of it is just, like, outright horrible poverty. poverty. Mm. And, like, like a lot of Latin America has a, has a decent amount of poverty to it, but Cuba was very, I was, like, for some reason more struck by it. Um mm. Probably also because I was like, come on, socialism, like <laughs> this is what you're supposed to not do, you know? Um, and when I was there, you know, Havana is also the one place in Latin America that actually has cocktail history. You know, most of the of our Latin American cocktails that we think about, like the Pisco Sour is basically a West Coast, California cocktail. You know, margarita probably comes from Texas. You know, like all these different things come from, uh, different places, so um, except for Havana, Cuba, who has like you know endless the Hemingway daiquiri, the mojito, the Hotel Nacional, you know da 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 da. This goes on and on. Um, mm-hmm. And I went there with Julio, um, who owns uh, La Cova, and we I went with him, and he's uh, Cuban, and we were talking, and he was like, you know, most. People who you see in these bartending positions um, are actually like some of the most educated people in in Cuba. I'm not. I already knew this one when I lived in Guatemala, but Cuba has some of the best doctors in the world. Like their medical program there was really really good. But because of the way their system works, they don't make any money. So you meet all of these people who were like Julio was an engineer. Uh, you meet, you meet all these people who are doctors. You meet all these people who have like insane degrees who, because you can get tips, can make more money in a day than you can in a week or a month, you know. And I thought that was just so interesting. There was a great deal of pride uh, in the position and in the work of being a bartender there that I thought was just really awesome because, you know, when I first started doing this, Everyone was like, "Well, what else do you do? Are you like a struggling actress? Are you a struggling, you know, musician? You know, are you a, a struggling artist? Like, what, what else? What else do you do?" And I was like, "Yeah, you know, I have an art studio, but this is what I do. Like, this is my job. Um, this is what I'm working hard to be good at." So that was a real, um, really eye-opening and really awesome to see the level of pride and the level of uh, dedication to the craft, and it was pretty great. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it kind of brings us back to not the origin of bartending, of course, Mm -hmm. but sort of the first big publication, Jerry Thomas, the professor, right? You know, kind Mm -hmm. of an academic, almost like a, you know, uh, it's funny, I, I think today we have this impression of the bartender as for a for good reason, like a, almost like a servant, a server, somebody who's here to serve you to kind of be invisible when you want them to be invisible and to be there when you want them to be there. And mm-hmm. that's fine, that's hospitality. that's that's kind of you know what the hospitality industry is there to provide a given person on a, on a given day. but it's interesting to also have you know that that feel where you know you walk into the bar and you can use the bartender as a resource. and I, I think that that two cool. things a, Perfect example of what I was talking about, because nobody like none of us would have been able to glean that fact if because we haven't done the work and gone to Cuba and found, you know, found a bartender who knows it well enough to be a guide for us. So I think that's a perfect illustration of, of precisely the value of what you put together in this book. Uh, and then, you know, uh, also, it's it's just it's a fantastic perspective shift, you know, and I think why do we travel? You know, we travel to get away. We travel to find ourselves in a different place. Uh, exactly. And and I think, uh, you know, it's it's so funny with the times that we're in, I just see Central and South America as being more and more attractive because A, it's connected to the US. Our, our trade is not, you know, stuck in foreign ports. We can get stuff here, you know. So uh, in terms of the availability of these spirits, I think we have an advantage during this pandemic, and you know, I, I just think that you know traveling closer to home is, is going to be what people to, uh, what people do in the next several years. So uh, I, I think this it comes out at a bad time, unfortunately, because of the pandemic. <laughs> but I think that there are some um, some good things about um, about that. Did, did you have to deal with any pandemic related stuff while you were traveling, or did you manage to get this all in before?
1: I got all in before, so I actually finished my travel ex- like basically exactly a year before COVID hit okay. um, for for the book, which was you know obviously like thank God, you know I will say well two things based on that point. Number one, when my when we first started to make this book and when I and part of my goal of it was you know Trump had just been elected um, and there was all this talk about you know he you know one of his election things was like putting pictures out of like, look at these horrible immigrants coming from the South. Like we're going to build a wall and keep them out. And, you know, all that I was just like, Jesus Christ, this is so crazy. And I really believe that people need to eat, you know, you don't need to drink, but it is fun. Um, and you can really understand people. You can get a little glimmer, a little insight into different people's cultures based off what they eat and drink. Um, And my hope was that in this book that people could really get a a look into that. And the other thing I said was I took a lot of inspiration out of all books from the Franklin Barbecue book, which is one of the best-selling cookbooks of all time. And in it, they teach you how to make their massive smoker, um, which no one will ever do. Maybe 1% of 1% of people actually made that smoker. You know what I'm saying? Because it's so insane. And yet, everyone bought this book. So I was like, okay... I don't expect everyone to go hop on an airplane and travel for four months or five months like I did because it's you know, not realistic, um, but fun. But like, my whole point, my whole idea was like, like I wanted to be like armchair voyeurism, you know. And that was before COVID. And now COVID's here, and I'm like, well, now even more so. Like you can't go somewhere. Like you probably can't go to Bolivia, but you can go and pick up a ball of Sangani, you know, and like mm-hmm. kind of transport yourself there.
0: Yeah, and- for sure. For sure. So I'm I'm guessing in the the second or third or the su- the next printing of this book is going to have like a, a schematic of you know those 500 year old stills that uh, Demerar is de selling. Yeah? yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Good. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll start. Uh, I'll start uh, building up some karma at the at the hardware store down the street and see if they can uh, <laughs> supply me with the necessary uh, tropical woods. Um, so I think this would be a great time to transition back to Landa talk a little bit about the program that you built there because obviously there was a, a conversation between the program that you built uh, at Landa and then also the the cocktails from the book. I imagine that there was, a, it, was it was a fertile testing ground for some of these drinks. Um, so can you walk us through I guess you know just a little bit more about the program at landa? How do you try and structure your menu there? What kind of flavors do you um, strive for and then kind of how that bled into the book?
1: Sure. The kind of handy thing about having Leyenda be Pan-Latin inspired is there are certain categories, certain spirits, certain places where I'm like, got to hit those. You know, like, okay, do I have my, you know, jalapeno infused tequila drink? Do I have my pisco drink? Do I have my cachaça drink? Like, there's certain things I have to be like, "Do do I got it? Do I got it? And if I don't Have it, then I have to put I have to put it on there. So I I actually um sorry I'm a visual person. (laughs) I have an Excel sheet where I have different spirits, um and then different like categorized flavor profiles like creamy, spicy, fruity, sweet, kind of like this. Um then it's like refreshing, stirred, boozy, stirred, light, you know, and so I can look at it. And what I need to see after I have a menu is like little dots equal equal spaced across the entire sheet. So when I first started myself, um, I did all the drinks myself and it's hilarious on our first nights of friends and family, I realized that every single one of our drinks is pink. (laughs) 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 Like what have I done? Um, You don't see them until they're all together. But now we, you know, when we started, I kind of took the Clover Club vibe and like so many different cocktail bars out there, we have like a submission process. So um, what I would do is rather I'd keep my little graph, right? And I'd take drinks off and then I'd see spaces that were empty. So I'd write my bartending staff and be like, take different categories. It's almost like doing like an ad lib, like here's your noun, here's your verb, here's your adjective, right? Like take one from each category, from each column and then make a drink, you know? So it's like, okay, I have Pisco, I have bitter, I have stirred. Okay, go forth, and then you got to make this drink, and the rest of it's kind of up to you, you know. And then we do a big R and D, like we do different crits. So I know I said I was a philosophy major, I was also a fine art as a double major in college. Um, so it's kind of like an art crit, like you kind of like go in, you crit it, you work on it, and like that's the one thing about the book. People are like, well, all of these ingredients were so specific. I'm like, well, right, because we sit there and we're like, I'm not sure if that driver vermouth is the best driver vermouth for this drink. Let's try this driver vermouth, you know. Does it make it a bad drink if you use a different driver vermouth? It does not. It will be fine, you know? But, but these, are, these are the steps that we take to, um, to try to make the best drinks that we can. Um, and we also opened Leyenda. Uh, and when I opened, it was really important to me to take people from kind of different schools of thought. So, you know, you can kind of like look in the, the history of the bartending world, you can kind of see like different family trees trickle down. And I didn't want to have people just from the Julie Reiner tree. You know, that'd be easier for me because that's, you know, my tree, but I wanted to branch out. So, um, you know, our bar director now, his name is Jesse Harris, he learned from Sasha Pachowski. And, you know, I had a whole bunch of people that were from Julie, obviously, Um, but then I had like, Tristan Wiley, and he uh, used to work for Dave Arnold, you know, and I'll, people from a whole different slew, you know, Yeah, I had like some Death & Co people, it, and the cool thing about that is that when we did critiques, everyone came in with their own stuff, because, you know, once you're in the same family, it's like, oh, I always use the Masonez-Creme de Peche, there's no other kind out there, and then someone's like, well, what about this cool shit? Like, look, try this one, and you're <laughs> like, oh, wow, so you can kind of, like, expand your horizons and your and your interests, so kind of long-winded answer to a short question, but the, the cocktails are such an important, I mean, obviously like they're like what I do. Sometimes in the book, they were a bit of, not an afterthought I want to say, but I was so into the history and it's so important for me to talk about that, that I was like, okay, like we really got to talk about this. And the cocktails, um, it was actually a struggle for a little bit to figure out how to interweave these cocktails into all the copy um, of this book. Um, you notice that you know that the cocktails are after each section. So they're after agave, after sugar can after grape, they're not all in one compartment, which I really liked, but that was a struggle, you know. And it was like how do we put these in here and how we make it work? And at the end, it's not that big of a deal because it's not like we you know we're not sitting there like reciting the book to anyone who sits down. You know, it's kind <laughs> like people have to people have to, you know, ask questions about it. But yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I personally love that structure uh, because it, what it reminds me of is um, is something called a capping phrase. Um, if you've ever read uh, like a Zen koan, the, these like little philosophical riddle parables uh, that you're mm-hmm. supposed to meditate on. Uh, the way that they're presented in the texts uh, is that they're the, the, they call it the main cases presented. And then they have little capping phrases on there by the, by the translators or, or the scholars who, who compiled these. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's meta commentary. And so in a certain respect, the, the cocktails at the end of each section are kind of there to help us develop and integrate some of the things that you've, you've worked through the sections with. Um, and I really enjoy that because it's kind of, it's, it's learning without learning. It's like, it's like eating a healthy dessert almost it's because it, you're getting, <laughs> you're, you're developing your knowledge, but it doesn't, it just feels like you're making a drink. So I, I love right. that. Um, I'm so Glad that I asked that question. You were able to explain the way you develop these cocktails in the bar because um, I was trying to figure out a way to explain why these cocktails are special and uh, and, and what you were saying about like, well, the, is this the perfect driver vermouth? We're not going to, as home bartenders, as people who buy this book, we're not going to go through that process. No. Um, and so part of the polish of it, sort of like the 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 coat of wax on the car that makes it shine, but that we can't see because it's clear is the fact that you did all this work and now we don't have to. So if if I do have that vermouth available in my market, well, great. It's it's maybe two bucks extra than the, the, you know, kind of middle of the road thing sitting next to it. Great. I'll S I'll spring for two bucks because the other cocktails I've made from this book have been incredible. Um, so I think that that really develops it as a, as a really finely tuned resource, um, so it's it's more of a performance vehicle for uh, for us home bartenders who are maybe not used to uh, driving driving such uh, sexy recipes in our in our own homes. That's uh, that's a, that's a <laughs> weird mix metaphor.
1: Yeah. yeah, but no, yeah. <laughs> But I would also say like one of the interesting things about right now, like depending on where your listeners live, and I've been telling this to people, like if you're like, I do not want to go out and buy a whole bottle of X you can go to your bar and ask to buy a few ounces, like go to your favorite bar. If you've got a favorite cocktail bar, like, Hey, do you have any genopi? Cause it's weird shit and I don't know where to find it. And they'll no, but like, literally, I mean, as a bar owner, I can tell you if, if it's legal where you live, I will guarantee you that your bartender will be happy to sell you a few ounces of some weird stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. With everybody doing to go, obviously. Yeah. There's, there's some, there's a lot of regulations that have been relaxed. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I I do want to just quickly return to to the way that you workshop these cocktails because this again this is an unknown to me coming into this and and I'm just fascinated by it because I I don't have an art background but I, I do have a like a poetry creative writing background and and I mm-hmm. ran workshops at the University of Maryland for a, for a number of years and I I love the idea of just you know we would we would circle up the desks in a circle and and just you know. Part of it, obviously, is you know, like any crit or any anytime you put your work, your art on display for the rest of the class to kind of pick apart and analyze. Uh, it's it's a little you know kind of nerve wracking. It's mm-hmm. you, it's very personal. You've spent time doing this, um, but you derive all this from a spreadsheet that's almost like a set of improv inputs, right? It's like <laughs> all right, you need pisco boozy st- or P- pisco bitter stirred. That's it's it's just. um I'm fascinated by how you've been able to take so many different, like almost like approaches to constructing a drink, right? There's the spreadsheet approach, there's the workshop approach, and then there's the kind of like improv aspect of it. And it's like somehow like all of those things fuse to be really useful. Um, Do do you, did you develop that on your own or is, are there other bases for that in the bar world?
1: Um, well, I think that, I I don't know anyone else who does it necessarily that way that I do Mm -hmm. it. Um, I think also, like, you know, when we first opened Leyenda, um, and even with the book, you know, I told everyone, I was like, listen, we are selling things that people... It's not like we're selling vodka and gin and bourbon. We're selling things that people don't know what it is necessarily, let alone know how to pronounce it. So we have to, like... The way our menu is worded, the way we construct our cocktails, you know, like different things have to be. Um, we have to give people as much information as humanly possible um, so they feel comfortable ordering a drink because, the, you know, no one wants to feel like an idiot. That's like the last thing someone wants to do. No one likes to <laughs> flaunt their ignorance and be like, I'm sorry, I don't know what matre quiche is. You know, I'm like, oh, it's an agave dummy. You know, like you don't, <laughs> we, we, we need to be open and, hand, and kind of hand holding. So a lot of what we did, um, also, and, and I guess I never really realized it until I wrote the book and someone called it out. We do a lot of split bases. And when I, and I always thought that this is like course, but we rather than a base, your base spirit is you know, usually the thing that's over 80 proof. And, we do a lot of splitting those amongst more traditional spirits. So, and then sometimes even within the the same Latin American category. So like we'll do Jamaican rum and bourbon, Mm -hmm. some sort of old fashioned, right? And then we'll do like gin and Pisco, or we'll do, you know, Spanish brandy and, you know, blah. And, I think that the, that way you give people an in, you know, they look and they're like, don't know that. Don't know that. Do you know that love watermelon? I'm going to get that drink, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I'm not sure if I answer your questions Kind around of a roundabout way.
0: No, it's it, it's. Um, I mean, the the process is is really important. I think, um, and that's kind of why we take you know a nice a good long time to to break it down because you know it's a, it's a great book just on on the surface, but when you when you really learn like all the little nuances of how it was constructed and why you made the decisions you made, I mean, it just makes it even better. Um, so I guess we'll wrap up the the main portion of the interview here by um, asking it, you know. Now that you've had a little bit of time, time to step away, time to consider this as a as a somewhat completed project, even though you know books are sort of never really feel completely done. There's always more to do: promote the book, edit the book, different edition. But like now that you've had a little bit of space from it, did you did you change in any way in terms of the way you think about spirits and cocktails here in the U.S. as as somebody who's actually putting them on bars in front of of customers?
1: Yes, uh, yeah, for sure. I mean. One thing that I think um, is important is with Latin American spirits, there tends to be this tendency to romanticize the poverty of the people who are making these spirits. So it's like, okay, here's this guy with little chancas sandals on in the middle of the desert chopping down an agave with his bare hand and putting it on a donkey. And this is so, you know, look how amazing this is. And isn't it so rustic? And and like, this would be great on my Instagram feed. And kind of like everyone wants to be a National Geographic photographer. And I'm not saying that that's not beautiful. Yes, part of the things about these spirits is they have been done in the same way for so long. But There are ways to maintain authenticity without having it be at the expense of a great group of people, right? So, you know, lots of these places have been struggling to keep their tradition alive. Um, And it's not like, you know, lots of people are like, yeah, I... I could have gone and become like some sort of engineer or something, but I didn't, I stayed in this tiny town and I'm doing my thing, or yeah, I went to school, but now I came back to do this. This is my family's tradition. And I'm going to keep it alive. But I became very aware of this romanticism and kind of how unfortunate it is, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the perpetuating of it that I find to be, you know, Annoying, and you know, just looking back, and still, when I see people coming into my bar and trying to sell me some spirits, and they have these pictures of people doing this back-breaking work, uh, which is really hard, because you know, in the end of the day, spirits are just agricultural products. Like that's like kind mm-hmm. of the like kind of the deal, um, and and they're beautiful photos, right? And 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 they're, and it's great, but I'm just like, okay, now here you ask certain questions and you're like, well, like, how much is that guy getting paid? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) you know, so I became much more aware. Um, like, it's almost like a regret. Like how was I not more aware, you know, before, but definitely becoming more aware of, you know, you, we should be paying money for the things that we're drinking. Like these are historical little nuggets that are still available they're very much in danger of being lost because of greed and desire for quantity over quality. Um, so pay, pay and ask the right questions. Um, that's what I would say. Uh, certainly some saw some things in my travels where I was like, like, if you could be doing anything else, would you, would you still be doing this? And some people were like, no. And some people were like, yes, I would still be doing this. Like, this is what I love to do. So Mm -hmm. my hope is that we can, pay people enough and do enough and like have, because there is a great pride. Everyone has a pride over this cultural piece of their, you know, heritage and their life. And yeah, just making sure that people are a little bit treated better because the juice is good, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I like that too. And that's, you you know, like in a certain, in, in one respect, that's a tough mindset to try and cultivate because those National Geographic style pictures are just sexy. They're fun to look at. They're they're compelling in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, it's really not all that hard to like, kind of flip a switch in your mind and be like, hmm, you know, like if I have the expendable income to drink, well, you know, I should I should have the expendable income to to pay to pay for it a little bit more. It's it, it's <sighs> weird because we're always looking for a deal, right? We get a dopamine hit when we get a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, But if you can maybe just tweak that slightly and and maybe try and give yourself reward yourself with a different type of little brain chemical hit by doing something good with the money that you're spending and and really targeting it, I I think it's going to be tough because the dopamine hits just easier. But I I do think that, you know, if, if you really put your mind to it and slow down when you're at the bar or at the liquor store, then I I think that that's, that's not so far outside of the realm of imagination that we can maybe start making some small incremental change in that direction. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, Before we jump into a few quick lightning rounds here, um, any, anything else you want to share with folks about the book, any, any preferred places where they can purchase it? Any, any of that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you can purchase it, through leyenda you can purchase it purchase it through my website um you can purchase it through amazon although you know the one person who's made money during COVID is Bezos, so you know do with your do, but it is on sale on amazon i will say that and you know <laughs> every, every time someone buys it on amazon it goes up the charts and you know part of me is like buy it on amazon the other part of me's is like no don't um, mm-hmm. but i always say support your local bookstore um my hope is, is that if you live in like i don't know chicago or Miami and you contact your favorite independent bookstore and like, I really want to get this book, maybe they'll pick up three, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, and then Mm -hmm. someone else will get it. So yeah, support local, shop local, and then review it on Amazon, (laughs) even even though you didn't buy it there.
0: (laughs) Uh, Interesting. Interesting. I like that. That's a good little hack. That's a good little hack. All right. Just a couple little lightning round questions. I know that you have a heart out here, so let's uh, let's just do a couple here. Um, what is your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's something you've more recently fallen in love with?
1: My favorite cocktail, ironically enough, because um, it doesn't have a Latin spirit in it, is a Negroni. Um i love it because it's one of the hardest drinks to completely screw up but it's also one of the hardest drinks to completely perfect like going back to the vermouth Mm -hmm. question like which vermouth which gin, how are you gonna do it what's your proportions you know Mm -hmm. um and i can get in a dive bar and i can get it in a fancy cocktail bar and i'll probably be pretty pretty happy with it
0: (laughs) true true and it's great for split bases right
1: (laughs) yes there you go exactly
0: (laughs) All right. If you could have a cocktail with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just kind of paint us a picture.
1: Uh, I would have a drink with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I would have a martini with her. I, call my, I do my martini, not because she's old, but I drink my martinis. I like call them grandma <laughs> style. Um, 50-50 with a lemon twist and an olive. Um, mm. And I, th- I would go to the Carlisle um, in Midtown.
0: All right, yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, uh, wh- and what would she drink?
1: Oh Jesus, P- P- the same. Did you see her drinking a martini? Yeah, I, I can. Just, or, or just like, or like an old fashioned. Like let's just like let's just like give her like a big, or just like a, a scotch neat.
0: <laughs> mm, ooh, ooh, yeah, I could see that. Like with that, with the bars, one really nice like crystal, crystal rocks glass. Yeah, yeah, exactly, I like it. <laughs> Okay, beautiful. Uh, What's an unusual or controversial view or belief that you hold in the spirits and cocktail world?
1: I don't like a dimly lit bar. Mm. Hate it. Too dark is not good. One of my favorite things about COVID, the only silver lining, is that all of these speakeasies that were like hidden underneath carpets now have to be out in the street and everyone has to find them and it's clearly lit and I can read the menu. Like, I'm not like I'm old. I haven't been able to read a menu inside of a fancy cocktail bar for in my whole life, so. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's
0: true. That. It's true. Interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's, I think that's, that's definitely more of a trend now though. So it's like, it's kind of slowly starting to change. There's there, I've been in some really beautiful ones. San Francisco is a great city for, for some, some brightly lit cocktail bars. Agreed. Um, mm-hmm. even though they do have their, you know, every city has their fair share of the dens. Um, and DC, mm-hmm. yeah, D- DC is starting to like really embrace that, really embrace some of the more open air stuff and the, the brighter concept. So, totally. um, yeah, you know, and it, to be honest, I don't like being out super late at night, so if I'm if I'm gonna head to a bar for like a nice early happy hour, I like it to to be a place where I can sort of enjoy the golden hour.
1: Uh, same. So I'm, I'm exactly the same way. I'm like I don't want to walk out and be like, "Oh, wait, what? Is it? It's five a.m." <laughs> you know?
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, Ivy, this has been tremendous. Um, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, for shedding some light not only on the book itself, but kind of the some of the the really. I think, deep and important work that went into putting it together. Um, Can you just give our listeners all the ways to um, keep in touch with you in the digital space, social media, website, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so it's all really easy. Uh, My website's ivmix.com, and on every social media platform, I'm just at ivmix. So that's why I'm pretty the most active on Instagram, Twitter kind of, TikTok, not at all. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right and uh landa is l-e-y-e-n-d-a uh mm-hmm. so that's where folks can check out Leyenda and um ivy thanks once again for being on the podcast i
1: really appreciate you having me thanks so much
0: This episode was produced by Edie Frederick, with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, spirited insights courtesy of Ivy Mix and her new book, Spirits of Latin America, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.